Well, good morning. It is good to be with you, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, we're glad to be together with one another and to encourage each other in the walk that we have in Christ and to keep our focus on the true plan that God has provided that we can be saved and we can overcome the sins that tempt us and sometimes entangle us. Because God's plan, as revealed in His inspired Word, is the perfect plan. And it's the only plan that will save us. We're so glad that you're here and we're encouraged by your, by your presence. If you're still in the area, uh, this evening we'll meet again at 6 p.m. for another hour of worship. And we invite you to come back and be with us then as well. If you're driving around Murfreesboro and you're looking at all the growth that's happening... What does the ever-increasing numbers of beer and tobacco shops, you know, vape stores, tattoo parlors, and every kind of restaurant catering to the public's desire of alcoholic beverages? You know, what does all of this have to say about the focus of our community, about the focus of our culture? What does it say about the changing morality of our times? What do you think that's saying to us? Well, clearly, carnality, the pleasures of all kinds of fleshly lust, are continuously on the minds and in the hearts of the masses. The Apostle John wrote back in the first century, describing the world then, and it is the truth, and it still describes the world today. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The state of affairs is not a new problem for us. It is not a new problem for mankind. It is not a new problem for societies. But rather, it is an ongoing problem. It's one that just keeps resurfacing again and again and again. Sadly, generations of men have, have failed to learn from history. And as a result, what do we do? We repeat the transgressions of the past, not just on national scales and political aspects in the world, but in a very real sense, in very personal ways. Mankind just keeps going back down. We just keep going back down the well-worn path of moral depravity. It's a sad picture of humanity. It's a sad picture of our culture today. It is a sad picture of our world, but that's the world we live in, and God loves humanity, and God sent his son into the world and died for all of humanity to save us from our sins, to save us from the problem we've gotten ourselves into. Now, history also tells us this. History also tells us that religion, religion can contribute to the downfall of man. 
Now that's sad, is it not? I thought religion is supposed to be a remedy. A religion is supposed to be a help. And yes, ideally God's true religion that is designed to save us and turn us out of, from darkness into light. But history testifies to the fact that, yes, religion sometimes contributes to the downfall of mankind. What do we mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, that religious doctrines, religious teachings of men make compromises. And those compromises, what they do, they end up gratifying ungodly desires. And let me give an example of this that's pretty well known. In 1534 A.D., so 1534 A.D., many of you know, you know what happened then on a religious scale because King Henry VIII of England declared a separate religious body from the one that he was connected with. He declared a separate religious body from the Roman Catholic Church, and what did King Henry VIII do? Well, he established the Church of England. He made himself the supreme head of the Church of England because he didn't want to be under the Catholic Pope because what the Catholic Pope was saying about him. So he didn't want to be under that authority, and so he decided, oh, I'm going to be authority for myself. And so he declared himself head, and he instituted and established with the help of others another church. And all of this transpired, why? Well, because King Henry VIII wanted his marriage with Catherine to be dissolved. He wanted out of that marriage. And he wanted to be able to marry Anne Bolin in his attempts to have a male heir. And as you know, Henry VIII never did have a male heir, no matter how many women he married and whatever he did to them, whether he divorced them or killed them. Religion is sometimes part of the problem. And you think about man will, will sometimes will do mo- almost anything. Man sometimes will do almost anything at times to justify wrongdoing. If we want to justify something that's wrong, we'll find a way to justify it. Especially if selfishness and if covetousness are the guiding forces of our life. If that's what's really driving us, then we will find things to justify wrongdoing. And we can even find religion. We can find teachers who claim to be teachers of the word that will justify what is wrong. And so for decades now, there has been an underlying agenda to redefine morality in this world. And and this agenda is also, for quite some time, has been trying to sway all churches of all kinds to accept what God disapproves of, what God condemns, because wrongdoers want to justify their wrongdoing. But who defines morality? Who defines it? 
Well, if you looked up in a dictionary, this is simply a dictionary definition. So whichever dictionary you, you use, you'll find something similar to this as you see up on the PowerPoint. And so the morality is that character of being in accord with the principles or the standards of right conduct, as opposed to conduct or actions that are wrong. So that's a pretty generic definition. And the idea there, 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 is some, there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And the thing, well, who, who decides? You know, who decides what is right and who decides what is wrong? But moral conduct is really all-inclusive, really. Moral conduct includes your entire character. It includes your thoughts as well as your words. Not just actions. It includes actions, yes. But morality also touches on your thought process and on your vocabulary. It also applies to your outward appearance, how you present yourself, your entertainment. Just go down the line. Morality touches all facets of your life and all facets of the world's life. So who are we going to listen to? Do we heed God, our creator, or do we, or we, do listen, or we do listen to men? Well, you, you compare the two. You think, well, what's God's character like? Well, there's a number of passages you can turn to, and we're not going to read all of these, but I have those before you. But in Peter, it talks about how God is holy. You know, John writes about how he is pure and righteous, I'm going to read Psalm 116, verse 5. I think this is a a good verse, kind of sums it up very briefly for us, where the psalmist says, in speaking of Jehovah God, our God, the one true living God, he says, gracious is the Lord, gracious is Jehovah, and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. He is all of that. That's God's character to us. Now, without the light from God that God has shown down upon us through his Son and through his inspired scriptures, without that, what's man's character? Well, man's character is one that he walks in darkness. And he walks in this darkness according to his own wisdom. And where does it take him? Where does it lead? It leads to selfishness and iniquity. And evil. Jesus, I think, summed it well in John chapter 3. The gospel of John chapter 3, verse 19. When he says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Well, who was the light that came into the world? Well, that's Jesus. He says, so I came, I came as light in the world, and it was a judgment. Light illuminates. Light penetrates, light exposes. And so he says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men, this is, he's describing man's general character. Men loved the darkness. That's man's character. Men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds. Why did they love darkness? Why did they want to stay in the dark? It's because their deeds were evil so 
Who do you want to listen to? Who, 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 who should we look to to define morality? Are you going to turn to God or are you going to turn to man? Mankind has gotten himself into the mess that he's in. We have the problems today not because of God. God is not the originator of our problems. Man is. Mankind is. And so, you know, in a sense, we've all gotten ourselves into this mess that we're in, and it's a mess that involves deception, it involves corruption, and it involves all kinds of immorality. But God is the one who knows best. Paul, the apostle, wrote to the evangelist Timothy in his first epistle, in his first letter in the sixth chapter. He says, godliness, that is the way of God, God's way. Godliness is profitable. When and where? Well, he says it's profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. If you want a life that is going to be good and have blessedness overflowing in it, then godliness needs to be your choice. It will help you now and it will help you in eternity. It's profitable for all those things. Why is that? Because there is no one good except God. Jesus says that in Luke 18, 19. God is, is the originator and the author of goodness. And so we need to look to God for that standard of righteousness, that standard of goodness. His laws are good. Brother John made, made that point in his uh, class this morning. But all of God's laws are for man's good. You know, the law of Moses was for the good of Israel. The law of Christ is for the good of humanity. All of God's laws are for man's goodness. And so that's why Paul also writes in his second letter to Timothy, reminding the preacher, he says, all scripture is inspired by whom? Well, it's inspired by God, and it is profitable. What's what's it going to help you do? Well, it's going to teach you. It will also reprove you, but we all need some reproving from time to time, and it will correct you. We need correcting at times as well, and it will instruct you in what? It will instruct you or train you in what is right, righteousness. And it will make you, it will turn you into a man of God who is equipped for every good work. So who defines morality? Well, God ultimately is the one who defines morality. Man's definition will only take you deeper and deeper and deeper into utter darkness. And wickedness. And damnation. Departure from the authority of Christ's word. Anytime we start veering away from the inspired, God-inspired scriptures, the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, any departure from that really becomes an open door for immorality, 
not moral, not morality to spread, but for immorality to spread. Careful adherence, diligent adherence is required. It is expected of us, of all men. And so there's a number of passages you could turn to that clearly brings out that point, that Jesus and through his apostles taught that, yes, we need to hold a strict adherence to what the Lord says, what the Bible teaches. For example, Matthew 7, 21, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so, yes, we need to adhere to God's word. We need to follow and keep God's commandments. In the Great Commission of, of Matthew's account, 28, verse 20, we see when, he, when Jesus sends the apostles out to preach the gospel, he says, and teach them to do what? Teach everybody to observe what I have commanded. Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, if you love me, keep my commandments. You say you love me, this is how you're going to show it. Or in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, Hebrews 5, verse 9, where the inspired word says that Jesus Christ is the author of salvation to all those who obey him. The scriptures is very clear that believers are called upon to respect God's word and adhere to God's word to the best of their ability And the thing is, if men justify, for example, a change in worship, if we we change how we worship, we do something differently in the way we worship from what the New Testament teaches, that's different from Christ's authority, that's different from the New Testament pattern that we read, If if we veer from that aspect, then it's logical then. It is logical, not right, but it's logical that people then will justify other wrongdoing. If I can justify this wrongdoing, then I can justify another wrongdoing, especially if it's my personal life. And it's my personal life where it's something I want to do. And so I'm going to justify it one way or another, no matter what the Bible actually says. And that happened in churches of Christ in the first century. Because of false teaching in some of the churches, in these churches were in the region of Asia Minor. And you look there in Revelation 2 as well as Revelation chapter 3. There are some teachings going on that should not have been going on. And as a result of that teaching, you know, the, you know, the minds and the hearts of Christians were being led astray. Because of what is being taught. And it went to the point, is, and they were being led astray, and it says, and they were engaging in immorality. These are New Testament Christians who called upon the name of the Lord and obedience to the gospel of Christ, confessing their faith in Jesus, repenting of sin in their past, and were buried within baptism, raised to walk in his life. And as life happened... You find that false teaching, compromises were made, and even Christians began to engage in immorality. 
You depart from the authority of Christ. What does it do? It opens the door. It clears the way for immorality to spread. Churches of all kinds, denominations that we see all around us, and some of the major denominations that have been on the pages of history for several hundred years. For a number of decades now, denominations have treated the authority of the Word of Christ, the pattern of the New Testament. They have treated this Word of the Lord very loosely. They've treated it very liberally. And it has advanced the worldly exclusivity of immorality. That is, even so-called believers in Christ are part of the problem. A lack of teaching against the misuse or the abuse of God's names, what does it do? It breeds irreverence. People who use God's name in vain are being irreverent. And if they're irreverent on, on that level, they'll be irreverent in another way as well. A lack of teaching against immodesty, the way we dress, a lack of teaching on that, what does that do? It feeds the practice of sensuality. A lack of teaching against filling our minds with impure entertainment. What does that do? Well, it's going to generate the acceptance of sinful behavior. A lack of teaching against alcohol use. What does it do? Well, it encourages a decline in self-control because that's what it does. It weakens us. And God expects us to be sober-minded At all times. A lack of teaching against the pollution of fornication, what does it do? Well, it's just it's gonna multiply, elicit sexual behavior. A lack of teaching against divorces, well, that what is that gonna do? Well, divorces, which God doesn't approve of, well, it's gonna promote ongoing adultery. And so if God's laws regarding the sanctity of marriage or God's laws in regard to one's body is to be sanctified for the Lord's purpose. If those laws no longer matter, well, then what's going to happen? Well, men and churches will begin to approve and practice what the Creator clearly states is unnatural and indecent such as homosexuality. And that's not the only unnatural, indecent sexual behavior that's going on today. Who defines it? God does, that's who. God defines morality, not us. God does because he is good. He is pure and he is holy. And he's created us for goodness. He's created us for holiness, for that which is honorable, and for glory. And so, yes, God's going to condemn sexual immorality of all kinds. 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, the body is not for immorality. Whatever immorality you're, you know, that you're talking about, the body was not made for that. The body was not made for lying. The body was not made, your tongue was not made to misuse God's name. You know, the body was not made for you to be unfaithful to your wife. The, God, the body was not made for immorality. It was made for the Lord. We were made for our creator. And the Lord is for the body. So our bodies is not simply for our personal pleasures. Even though that's exactly what the world has been preaching for a very, very long time. Whether it's the promiscuous lifestyle of, of the European historical scenes, or whether you're talking about the modern feminist movement, the body is not made for us to do whatever we want to do with it. The body was made for us to glorify the Creator by living good lives and holy lives for Him. And so when we fail to acknowledge, when mankind fails to acknowledge God as well as they fail to acknowledge God's set standards, where does it lead? It leads down a path of selfishness and depravity. And so, yes, fornication is sin. Fornication is sin, and it is sin that can cause you to go to hell. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, describes sins and and the sinners who are practicing those sins and what their eternal destiny will be. It's the second death of a place described as fire and brimstone. Fornication is simply a term, a very broad term that is all descriptive of all kinds of sexual sins And it is to be avoided. It is to be abstained from. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. And then he begins to expound on what he's going to talk about specifically. What kind of sanctification? He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality or fornication. And that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor and not in lustful passion. Fornication is a work of the flesh, and those who practice the works or the deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, Galatians 5. The sexual relationship between a man and a woman is to be reserved and is to be preserved for the honorable, lawful union of marriage. That's God's design. That is good. That is pure, and that is holy. Premarital sex is fornication. It is sin. 
engaged couples living together before the covenant of marriage. It also is sin. Lascivious and sensual behavior that leads to sex, that excites one and stirs one up, that too is sin. And just because it's consensual sin doesn't mean it's okay. Consensual sin is still sin. Consensual sex is still sin. And we need to understand that God has laid down this law and warns us about it because fornication will only hurt you and those that you engage in it with. It messes up your life. Adulterers and adulteresses will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, you're familiar with that passage where Paul, writing to a church that is in a city that was extremely immoral, Corinth, known in that day and age, how wicked and immoral it was. And here's a church. People can come out of it. People can turn from it. People can change. And so he says to the saints in Corinth, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And everything he lists here is unrighteous. It is not right. It is wrong. He goes on to say, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Who defines morality? Well, God does, because God knows best. God created for us for something wholesome and good for us. God is the judge, and his, and his judgment is the measure Man's justification of it is not. And man has been justifying adultery almost from the beginning of time. It's not just a modern problem. It's an ancient problem. What is adultery? Well, adultery, in basic terms, is any unlawful intimacy and intercourse with another person who's not one's God-joined spouse. And so it could be two married people having physical relationships who are not husband and wife themselves to each other. And so they're committing adultery. Or it could be one married person with one single person. And that's not right here. That's adultery. And God is judging that. And he will judge that. But sometimes... What we see is people are remarrying when they shouldn't remarrying, and that marriage has become an unlawful relationship as well. Because to marry an unlawfully divorced person, and this is based upon God's word, as God defines what's unlawful, as God defines what's wrong. And so when there is an unlawful divorce that occurs according to God's word, and then these individuals marry again. What, what does it say? They become guilty of practicing adultery then. 
In Matthew 19, you're familiar with that, as well as in Mark and Luke, you have the harmony of the Gospels addressing this subject as well. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus is addressing a question and a problem of the day. And so in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, you know, he, he says to these people, he says, and I say to you, oh, he says, God, God joins together, no man is to separate. And he says, well, what, what's this all this divorce thing that Moses allowed? And he answers that very briefly. And then goes on to say, and I say to you, so here's the Lord himself, the Son of God, the Christ. He says, I say to you, whoever, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, for fornication, and marries another woman, commits adultery. For decades, men have been brushing aside God's word, ignoring Christ's commandments, violating the marriage covenant because they're more concerned about their immediate happiness and they're not all concerned about what is right in the eyes of their creator. And so they sin, harming themselves as well as others. And so it should not be surprised then as we think about our culture and how increasingly promiscuous it is and that we have become a place, the world has become a place that is fertile soil for men and women to exchange the natural function of their bodies for what is unnatural. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, as we bring this lesson to a close, Let's turn there and read some verses from that passage. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, by the guidance, the direction of the Holy Spirit, sent by Jesus, writes these words from God. In verse 21, it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. They turned away from God. They ceased to acknowledge the God that he is. And what happens? They became futile in their speculations. And they became foolish-hearted individuals because of the darkness that engulfed them. They couldn't even see the end of their nose. It was, they lived such a dark life. And so you think about what's described here in verse 24 and following. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God's. When man wants something bad enough, they'll justify it any way they can. And so they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in the desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Why, why and when does homosexual, 
homosexuality flourish? Well, it flourishes when truth is exchanged for a lie. That's why. And churches are part of the problem. Churches are part of the problem. And we have churches today who promote this world's lie because why? They do not love the truth. They do not love God's word of truth. And in turn, they don't love God. Oh, they may say, Lord, Lord, but they do not love God. And when you add or take away from divinely inspired scriptures in one area, how are you going to stop the flood of dissipation that is coming? You can't. Except by going all the way back to God's word and his authority and listening to him and doing what he says. All pursuits, all passions that dishonor the body, whatever it is. You know, these three sexual sins are not the only ways people pursue passions and pursuits that dishonor their body. Anything that dishonors the body that our creator gave us is judged by God as something that is immoral. Because we are harming ourselves and harming the vessel that God gave us to glorify him. Moral decay is obvious. It's all around us. And it's nothing new. It's nothing new. The world has always wrestled with moral decay. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. You see it happening among God's people in the Old Testament, and you see it happening to God's people in the New Testament. Moral decay is obvious. And yes, it has the appearance right now to all of us that it, it, it seems to be growing. Why? Well, because it appears that the majority, the majority do not know God any longer. Or they have forgotten God. Or they have forgotten God's ways. No matter what sin it is, sin can be forgiven. No matter how dark the hole that we dig for ourselves is, there is a light that can pull us out of that darkness. And it's God through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the only way who can save us from the mess that we get ourselves in. When a person is willing to see that they are lost in their sins and recognize that God is the solution and turn to his way, not man's way, but turn to God's way, God's remedy, and we've reached the point that we're willing to turn away from all of that past. We're willing to turn away from all the sins we committed. We, we don't want to do that anymore. That's what repent, repentance is all about, turning and changing our life. Is it going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But God says, I can save you. You have to believe me and believe my son. And turn from your sins and begin submitting your will to him. 
to the one who is your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you ready to do that today? Are you ready to make an allegiance to Christ by confessing your faith in Him to be the Son of God? And in your heart, know that you are making a change, and so you're repenting of your past, and you're ready to start that new life by bearing the old man, immersing the old man in baptism, as Jesus commands, so that you can be raised up by God's grace through faith to walk a new life now, a different life that is totally unlike the world. God can do that in your life. And He wants to do that for you. But you have to make the decision to turn to God. If we can help you anyway spiritually this morning to put on Christ and become a Christian through baptism or as a child of God who is erred straight from the path and you have become entangled in sin again. And you desire the prayers of the saints we invite you, make your wishes known, come forward as we stand and sing.